one of the things that I've been really glad for uh, having a an almost six month old at home, which feels very scary and strange to be able to say, um, is that I'm not worried about him going to school in the next few weeks. And I know that that's not a luxury or a privilege that a lot of parents have right now. In fact, a lot of people that I've been talking to with slightly older kids or much older kids have been dealing with this anxiety about what we're doing in this COVID moment and how little resources are available, how few opportunities are going to be available, the resource juggle, the schedule juggle, all these things. And I wanted to bring in Dr. Daniel Summers, who's a pediatrician in North Andover, Massachusetts. He's with Children's Medical Office. Dr. Summers also writes for Slate. There's a piece in Arc Digital that I'm going to link in the description of this episode, uh, which talks about how schools are not Home Depots, which I will, I'm sure we're going to talk to uh, that in length in this conversation. And he goes by he, him pronouns. Dan, thank you so much for spending some time with me at the table. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for asking me. I was really uh, very honored to have been asked. So thanks. I'm looking forward to this conversation. In the piece that you wrote, again, this was at Arc Digital, you talk about how a school classroom is in so many ways, not the same as some of the other places where families have been either reluctantly or protectively going in the last few weeks, uh, last few months. Let me ask you, where are we now? Basic question. And, and, and what should people expect in the next few weeks as we lead up to the start of school around the country? I think the question you ask is a difficult one because we, in this case, is such a broad category and it varies so much in this country by where you happen to be and by how seriously your area, um, your state, your city, your region has been taking um, controlling the pandemic. And so I think that you're looking at very different answers uh, in different parts of the country, although I think the basic approach should be pretty uniform. I think what's impossible to deny at this point is that Rushing toward business as usual was um, really poorly thought out, um, and that we're seeing the consequences of that now. That when in May there was this um, desire, and it's a desire that I can certainly understand and relate to, to return to normalcy as quickly as possible, we're now seeing just record numbers of new cases, we're seeing increased death rates, and it's clear that just trying to whistle our way through this is not going to be a safe, responsible, appropriate um, way of handling things. As I'm sure you can imagine, this is a conversation I have with parents in my office all the time. I, I can't, honestly, there's not a day goes by, practically not an appointment that goes by, where this doesn't in some way, shape or form come up. You know, how are we going to be managing the decisions of our daily lives going forward? And I do think that you know what we're moving from we're moving from kind of an absolute risk reduction model um, at the very beginning of the pandemic to more of an adjusted risk reduction model where you kind of have to decide which decisions you feel the risk benefit ratio is positive enough that you're going to move forward and which decisions are just simply too risky and every given decision every given parental decision every given educational decision is going to involve a different calculation for a different person, a different family, a different school. But it's a question that has to be addressed seriously. It can't be one where you blithely offer this kind of blanket 
statement that um, is thoughtless and um, doesn't attend to the very serious consequences of doing this poorly, uh, which unfortunately I think has been far too common, um, certainly from, from elected officials who are in decision-making capacities. I'm going to recommend the, the piece, the recent piece again to people, because you talk about how we need to address not just the locations uh, where people are living, but also the, the physical questions of each individual school and classroom. And, you know, how is the ventilation system? What do the bathrooms look like? You mentioned something in, in technical terms that I want to tease out a little bit, because you, you talk about the difference between absolute versus uh, adjusted risks. And I think about that, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning, I feel like with a very small child, just one very small child, I've had the luxury in this moment of having absolute risk reduction or as close as possible, where I can say we are just not leaving the house. And for parents who are hoping to send their kids or needing to send their kids for hours a day to another place surrounded by other children and other adults, that's not an option. So can you talk a little bit about how those decisions have been made? Let's let's leave the policymakers out of it for a moment yeah. and think about how parents are making that decision and how you as a pediatrician are helping them make that decision more responsibly. What are you telling them about the difference between, about incorporating more risk and how to do that as best as possible? So where my practice sits geographically is on the, the border between two very different communities. So um, we are pretty much literally on the border between Lawrence, Massachusetts and North Andover, Massachusetts. And so the patient population that we have is quite diverse um, in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways it's diverse is socioeconomically. The way I try to start all of these conversations is being respectful of where parents and families are coming from. And so it's not helpful to them if I have this uniform answer that doesn't acknowledge their lived realities. So for some parents and some families, keeping their kids home from daycare or school is just absolutely not an option. Um, they don't have the privilege of working from home. They don't have the privilege of deferring income. They have to go to work because their, um, their employment demands it, and that means their kids go to daycare. So those conversations are about you know, feeling comfortable where you're sending your kid. Do you feel like the staff is taking seriously its responsibility? Do you feel like, this is a hard question to answer, but do you feel like the culture of the place, you know, do you feel like the other parents are doing their part to take seriously their obligations to limit their own risk exposure because, you know, they too have to send their kids to daycare. A lot of these questions are, are really challenging to answer and kind of abstract, but, you know, you have to start by acknowledging that for these um, families, there isn't even really a risk-benefit calculation. There's, an, there's a need for the daycare because they have to get to work. And then you just talk about how comfortable they feel about their specific daycare setting. For parents who do have the privilege of working from home and can um, err on the side of caution, I typically recommend that they do that. You know, I, I feel like proceeding with as much caution as you can is never going to be an irresponsible decision. Right. So, right. Um, you know, if you have the ability to socially isolate to the greatest extent possible, if, you know, that's something that's available to you as a choice, then I'm going to tell you, go for that. You know, it's it's hard um, in a lot of different ways, but if you feel like you can hack it, then I'm never going to say you should be more easy peasy about it. And then there's kind of the, this zone in between where a lot of families fall, where, you know, there are 
educational needs that they feel like they simply can't meet, or there are socialization concerns, or you know they are working from home, but it's really tough to work from home and parent you know for every waking hour, and so they ask about things like nannies or um, like neighborhood um, childcare where they can feel like they know all the people on their street and they're kind of sharing in their responsibilities of childcare collectively and trying to like have a kind of the quote unquote bubble approach to things where it's not just a family, but it's a group of families who are trying to sort of isolate together because those involve a higher degree of risk, but those are still factors that you can feel like you can control to a greater extent. So let's say it's a nanny. This is obviously somebody you trust enough to look after your kids. Presumably you can trust that person to on their own end mitigate their exposures outside of your home so you you know presumably can have a conversation where you say i'm guessing you're not going to parties or the movies or you know you're you're doing the best that you can to limit what you're going to bring into our home exposure wise you know that's that's a conversation you can have so every family has to sort of view what available choices they have and pick the one that seems like the greatest benefit to the least risk as far as they can manage it do you feel like the difference between you you talk about the socioeconomic uh diversity that you experience both in your community and in your practice and do you feel like this moment has any option other than exacerbating some of the discrepancies that we've seen between wealthier parents and poorer parents because i already think about some of the options available in private schooling versus public schooling we've already seen for example the crackdown uh you know uh, black and brown students being uh, sent to juvenile detention because they're not doing their online coursework i haven't seen a comparative story where that's happening to uh to wealthier white kids uh th- this is a real this is a real moment where some of the the same problems that we've already seen kind of baked in to that boundary between home life and school life are going to get worse or am i am i mistaking what i'm seeing no i i i think that it's pretty impossible to deny that um the pandemic crisis both from a public health and from an economic point of view is making starker the disparities um in our society basically from whatever vantage point you want to choose. Certainly within healthcare, um, a lot of the the unsustainable parts of our, if you want to be generous, our system um, <laughs> are, you know, are becoming very obviously unsustainable. If you're, you know, the parents and the family are people who do um, maintenance or, you know, sanitation work at a local hospital, they don't have the means to hire a nanny. They don't have the option of staying home. Their work requires their physical presence um, in a somewhat higher risk exposure environment. And so um, for those people, they have no choice but to send their kids to daycare and, um, and take the risk that is there, whether or not they'd like to, as opposed to people who, you know, are, are looking at their menu of options and like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll have our nanny come back versus, um, maybe we'll send them to a, a private school where we can be more confident about their limiting class size or what have you. Um, and, and those are very, very different conversations. Right. It's pointless for me to talk about things that are outside of the scope of possibility for people who are much less privileged socioeconomically 
And I think that I'm sure that my office is simply a microcosm of our, our country and our, um, you know, these, these parenting concerns writ large nationwide. In this conversation, in the piece that you wrote and a lot on Twitter, kind of enjoy, I would say, debunking some of the, the myths that you see percolating out there in the um, media atmosphere. For example, you talk, uh, people have seen you, uh, if you, if they follow you on Twitter, which I would certainly recommend that they do for a number of reasons, all of them enjoyable, uh, that, that you talk about uh, the oxygenation and whether masks uh, prevent people from getting uh, all the, the clean air that they need. Uh, but there's a, a discussion in this piece about um, some of the, dis, uh, the, the claims made by, for example, Florida Governor DeSantis, and that, you know, if you can do one thing, you can do the other. You take a, a lot of uh, shots at this argument in the piece, and I just want to try to boil it down in this conversation. How, how should people understand some of the rhetoric that they're hearing in public about, hey, if you can do one thing, you can do the other? Because that is is an increasingly loud argument we're hearing from mostly elected Republicans on the uh, national stage right now. So um, again, thank you very much for all the kind things you uh, <laughs> said about the things that I write and say. People have a, a choice of where to put their eyeballs, and I would recommend that uh, it's 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 you could do a lot worse. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I like to think that I'm like the loudmouth uh, id of like what pediatricians nationwide um, are generally speaking too professional to say, uh, but for some reason I'm not. Um, <laughs> So what a, what an amazing health grades review that's going to be. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that's right. I should add that to my bio. Um, what for me is, and this has been true for for any number of years for any number of reasons, but right now at the specific time, is the just abject breakdown of basic common sense. Where, like, if you sound, we um, you sound a million years old right now, by the way, which I know is not you. the I, case. I feel a million years old. Um, but just like if we could collectively spend 30 seconds of critical thinking, perhaps we will see the flaws in what's being said. I'm pretty sure the founders well, gave us the freedom not to do that. That's I'm, and people, boy, are people exercising that freedom. <laughs> um, it you know, like just very briefly in the mask thing, like, can we just stop and realize that, you know, many different professionals, certainly doctors um, in certain specialties have been wearing these masks for hours on end. Like this has been the standard practice for decades. And you don't hear about surgeons like dying of oxygen deprivation mid surgery. Um, I've so, never, no, I've never heard that. Not one case, not one case. And so I, I find myself just stupefied by the notion that these these items are dangerous and harmful, and they increase your risk of you know infectious disease. Which, again, let's if we could just stop and think this through, we will see that this is an absurd argument that nonetheless has you know taken hold, and people are grabbing that ball and they are running as far as they can with it, and it just makes me bananas. Um, and so, again, like if you have stepped into a Home Depot and looked around, you will see that it is an extremely large space where it is very, very easy 
to be distant from other people. Um, it is not in any way a challenge to be in the paint aisle and not be in close proximity to anyone. Um, as opposed to a first grade classroom where they are, I've, I've yet to be in an amphitheater sized first grade classroom. Um, and these are people who, um, as is appropriate for their age, like to like be all crowded together and playing with the same thing and right on top of each other um, and not blowing their nose and not washing their hands. And, and people tend to frown upon teachers who don't keep all the students relatively close together. If you let one wander off, that's actually usually a sign of, of a bad school environment. Yeah, that's, that's discouraged to like, no, come back in 45 minutes. I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, you know, and so to say if you can open one, you can open the other is just such a profoundly empty statement because these are, and you would think that somebody who has a position like governor of Florida would be able to say, these are very, very different enterprises and the way that people conduct their business within these spaces and go about the activities they're in are very, very different. And and thus, the risks inherent in those activities are going to be very different, and managing those risks is going to be very different. While I'm pushing your buttons, let me ask you, the president continues to oh. describe, thank you for that, uh, the president continues to describe the, the risks to children as inherently lower than to adults, and I imagine, as a pediatrician, you've probably heard this song before in other diseases and in other contexts what what does he have i we don't have the time to d unpack all the things he's wrong about but what is he wrong about specifically about the transmissibility of this disease as far as we know so far and and how that might play out in for example uh, a non-amphitheater school environment so um he, and it pains me to say these words in this sequence. He is technically correct. That, um, <laughs> That's going to be the clip, by the way, that I isolate from this episode yeah. is, you know, uh, totally ruining his brand. Uh, <laughs> Dan Summers, the president, President Trump is correct. He is correct. <laughs> um, he is technically correct that as far as we have seen um, in all the data that are available for us to analyze, children are indeed the lowest risk population for serious illness, although there's certainly not, been, not zero risk, not zero, not, yep, yep, not zero, but lower than other populations. Although there are certainly, um, there've been reports of like a multi-system inflammatory illness, similar to a disease called Kawasaki is that, that may be attributed to COVID in some cases, but broadly speaking, children are at the lower end of the risk spectrum. However, um, children don't teach themselves. Children don't clean up their own classrooms. Chil I mean, not, not like, you know, maintenance-wise. Children don't dwell at the schools for the most part. Um, they are educated by grown-ups. They return to home where they live with grown-ups. It is grown-ups who staff the schools in all capacities. So it is specious, generously, um, to say, well, since children are at the lowest risk spectrum or on the lowest uh, end of the spectrum, um, therefore the risk, broadly speaking, is low. 
No, no, we're not. We're not worried just about the children. We're worried about the other human beings that the children are going to come into contact with. And so every year during cold and flu season, we start seeing wave after wave of children coming in with colds and flu and, you know, sometimes pneumonia and sometimes ear infections. And it's not at all uncommon for them to bring those germs home and spread them around everybody else in their family. That's I've never heard of a parent experiencing a a child-based cold in January or February. That's un. That's unheard of. No parent has ever complained about that. <laughs> yeah. How could that possibly happen? Um, and so for an illness like COVID that is really quite easily transmitted, um, it's entirely um, within the realm of possibility that just like any other cold or flu-like illness that spreads within a classroom, so it will too. And even if the you know most or all of those children, whether that illness with minimal complication what about the teacher? Right. What about the school nurse? What about the school counselor? What about all the other adults there? What about the kids' parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or medically vulnerable siblings? It's completely absurd to limit your discussion of risk to only the children and not the children and not the people that the children are subsequently going to come into contact with. And if I really just feel like if you can't grasp that reasonably basic concept, you should stop talking about this. I, I swear that I'm pushing the buttons that I know that I'm pushing, not because I'm taking an inordinate amount of joy out of it. I'm taking an ordinate amount of joy out of it, but it's also, I think, relevant to the question that we're trying, the conversation we're trying to have, which is, uh, let me let me ask you about the Surgeon General. Uh, the difficulty messaging on health fronts right now has has been widespread from the Trump administration, from state governments, from local governments. Um, and just this week, the Surgeon General says now the whole administration is on the same page as regards masks. How difficult has it been? And again, I imagine you've seen parents in you know March and April and May and June and now July where they've had this, like the same question, which is what the hell is the right thing to do about X masks being just one example of this that's had complicated messaging. How difficult is that from your vantage point as not the Surgeon General? What is the the um, the difficulty in kind of correcting this messaging on the ground in real time? And also, how dissatisfied are you that it's taken this long for them to allegedly get all on the same page on this one issue? I, I cannot... And again, I'm not trying to enjoy pushing your buttons, but that is uh, an unfortunate benefit of the fact that I get to do this. Well, you know, as you you mentioned my Twitter feed, my Twitter feed is basically just nothing but gigantic (laughs) buttons for people to press. Um, Yeah, exactly. So I have it coming. Um, You know, first of all, that it would take until July for there to be cohesive response to such a basic question as, should you wear a mask? Um, and by the way, I'm not even convinced that that's true because I'm reasonably certain that the president just the other day in his interview with Chris Wallace was saying, I'm not so sure about masks. So, you know, um, I said allegedly for a reason. I, I, it's it's a lovely sentiment. I'm not entirely sure I buy it. Um, so I am, I'd say lucky to practice where I do in that. I think that in my area of the country, there is, broadly speaking, and I'm sure this is not true 
uniformly, but broadly speaking, I think a collective understanding of what we need to do to to lower our risk of having more outbreaks where where we are. I am sure my colleagues in places like Florida or um, you know Arizona or some of these other places that are now seeing these outbreaks probably have had a much more frustrating time um, trying to impress upon um, people in areas where it's less clear that there is a collective approach to this. I cannot believe that we are at a point where it is controversial about whether or not you can bear the minimal discomfort of a scrap of fabric across your face. Like this, really? This is this is a big problem for you. Um, but apparently it is. And it's become politicized. And, and I just can't understand how we have come to the point where even that minimal step is just too much for people to take for the safeguarding of the public health. It just baffles me. Dan, at the beginning of this conversation, you cautioned against broad strokes nationwide discussion because obviously you understand the nuance here. But I have to ask a broader picture question again, uh, which is you and I probably are on the same page in terms of expecting the lack of planning to catch up with our school systems relatively quickly. And I don't, again, this time for real, no joy in reporting this out. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's a miserable thing to have to imagine. And I imagine because of your expertise, you've thought this through it with a lot more uh, detail and played out a lot more of the scenarios. How do you imagine this looking for the, as we get into late August, September, how do you imagine this actually going down? Because Kids are going to get sick. Adults are going to get sick. And in many places, uh, you know, the, the state and federal governments are not providing the resources to mitigate that damage that's going to happen. So what do you think this is going to look like a month or two from now, as best you can? And, as, and again, un, with the caveat being that that is an un, unfairly wide question. So um, I'm going to add my own caveat that I would desperately love to be wrong about this. There is nothing in the world I'd rather be than wrong. Again, I'm going to isolate that clip, and that one actually is not even going to be promotional. I'm just going to send that to your husband. Thank you. I wish you could play at nauseum um, <laughs> and the numerous instances on any given day that I am wrong. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a disaster. Um, I think... And I, 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 I hope that I'm not speaking too broadly, and that is in no way meant to be taken as an indictment of our educators or our school administrators who are doing, I think, probably to a person as best they can in this situation. So that is not a criticism of them. They're doing their best too. But I think that um, with the absolutely egregious, inexcusable pressure that is being put by the president and his administration. It's the nicest word I can think of. Um, I, I, the, the pause yeah. in there, I, I filled, I filled that pause in my mind. And I hope everyone who's listening to this conversation did as well with, with a thousand epithets. Yes. I just, just, it just, just flooded in there. Let's go with administration. The pressure sure. they are putting on schools to fully reopen is absolutely loathsome as far as I'm concerned. Um, but 
when schools are forced to do their best and open, I think that we are going to, we're going to see what I think is just the logical outcome. This infectious disease will spread within those environments, just like other infectious diseases. Just, you know, the common cold is caused by a coronavirus. So that one spreads in classrooms. The novel coronavirus is going to spread there too. And um, it's going to be on top of the typical cold and flu season. Um, it's going to be, you know, coincident with, you know, we're going to have another flu pandemic like we have every year. So get your flu shots, everyone. Um, and we are going to, I think, from a healthcare perspective, experience tremendous pressures. We're just going to see basically all the things that happened when things were beginning to start um, with the pandemic are going to come back full force and then some because there will be other illnesses that are going to be coming at the same time. And I think it's just going to be extremely hard. I also hope you're wrong, but as we look down and, you know, there, there have been continual off-ramps that have just been ignored as this vehicle careens screaming down the center of this highway toward a much worse outcome. And so I, I don't, I also hope you're wrong, but I, um, I, I, I don't believe that you will be, unfortunately. Um, let, let me. I don't see how I could be. We have a pediatrician here in D.C., uh, she has three kids. I'm really grateful for a pediatrician. And I'm, this is not to disparage pediatricians who don't have kids, but you and your husband have four kids. Uh, how has that informed you in this moment? Because y you have some skin in this game in a way that, uh, you know, other doctors, you know, the, in a way that uh, a plastic surgeon might, without children might not, for example. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you be both roles at this point? Uh, and how has being a dad kind of changed the way that you viewed your medical practice? Uh, both outside of this moment and inside of this moment. I, an enormous question to end on, but one that I just, I feel is so important. Just being a consumer of, uh, you know, pediatricians' expertise, uh, how, how is that making you, uh, changing you on a, on a daily basis? So, um, again, uh, this is in no way, shape, or form to imply that you have to have kids in order to be a good pediatrician, because I know many pediatricians who are, f like, superlative who don't have kids. Speaking only of myself, I was a pediatrician for five years before our oldest child was born. And I've said uh, on many occasions, I feel like I have five years worth of parents to apologize to um, for the abject worthlessness of a lot of the advice that I gave them because it was <laughs> very like, this is what the book said and how could the book be wrong? Um, and um, now that I have, you know, Many, many children, and so my husband and I are doing zone defense at any given time. Um, that's the only sports reference that I can ever do, by the way. Um, it's actually better than I can do. So, you know, I mean, we're both on the same uh, team, I guess, This for this one. I can dig it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, speaking of privilege, I have a tremendous amount of privilege in that my husband currently is um, devoting all of his time to parenting. And so that... Um, takes a lot of the pressure off of me that allows me to focus on days where I have to work on, on professional duties. But I see personally, I am not an educator. I, you know, I don't on, for a variety of different reasons, I am not cut out to be an educator. I don't have the temperament for it. Um, and I don't have the training. And so you know, the, at the end of last school year, trying to help our youngest kids with reading skills, like 
I don't have the same skill set as the fantastic teachers they had working on these issues with them. You know, I, you know, in meetings with them, I could hear the different strategies they were using and being so impressed at how they knew how to do this. I don't know how to do that. And so, you know, I look at the word and say, you know, sound it out or, or the ways that I was taught and, and, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I can see that there is a deficit in what I can offer my kids as opposed to the skilled, experienced educators that they otherwise would have access to. I totally understand the concerns that parents bring to me, like, you know, my kids aren't going to get the education that they otherwise would if we don't send them back. They're not going to get the socialization. You know, uh, one of the things that I do routinely in the office is developmental screening. So I ask, you know, at different stages what the developmental picture looks like. And a lot of them are based upon how they socialize with other kids. And that's not observable right now. And I, I, I happen to think that kids are resilient. And I think that they will... I think that they will very rapidly make gains when they have the option or the opportunity to do so. So I'm not pessimistic about that aspect of things, but I absolutely understand parents' concerns. And I don't fault parents for wanting to send their kids back to school um, for any number of reasons. Um, I, believe me, believe me, um, I would <laughs> love to have the option of having trusted grown-ups taking care of my children for large swaths of the day. Um, (laughs) By the way, again, I just feel like I should be sending parts of these clips to your husband because is he not a trusted? I mean, no, I, I, and I know, you know, he certainly, yeah, but like both of us, like it would be lovely to to like, I know I just sit on the porch and not have to worry about refereeing. You'll eventually, you'll eventually see him again. I'm sure one of these days. Um, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Um, But you know, I, I am, not in any way poo-pooing the concerns of parents. And I, I'm i not here to criticize the ones that opt to send their kids back to school. I totally dig why you would do that. It is incumbent upon the people who are making the decisions about how to open those schools to do so thoughtfully right. in a way that, again, withstands 30 seconds of scrutiny. Um, and the fact that this is even an open question just completely floors me. You know, for people who do follow you on Twitter, the amount of humility and thoughtfulness that you're putting out right now, I think, would not necessarily be a surprise in in terms of content, but certainly in tone. Uh, and so I really appreciate the um, just just how... I think we all need to approach this by acknowledging first and foremost what we don't know and so much of that in our political lives, in our medical lives, in our civic lives um, is it, it's just become this thing that we don't do for reasons beyond my understanding. I, I have to, I know I said last question, but I have to ask you, what is the most cringeworthy piece of advice you gave from those first few years of being a pediatrician before you had kids? And that you can think, uh, I, and I know, it, I, I'm sure I've just activated an entire portion of your brain of, of just shame. Uh, but that's, I, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic, so this is exactly what I've been trained to do my whole life. Excellent. Well, I was, yeah, I was, I was raised hardcore evangelical, so I also am very good at understanding the concept of. It's not so much shame. that I gave bad advice; it's that I gave advice that hadn't been lived through myself. 
So I, I remember one gotcha. specific interaction with parents um, and they had an infant and the infant was going through one of those developmental phases where they were fussy for no discernible reason for large amounts of time. And um, my response was basically, well, this is, this should work. Um, you know, I'm sure if you just do it the right way, if you, you know, hold your mouth right when you do it next time, it will help your child not be fussy. And I, I, I didn't get slapped, but I got the sort of dead eyed risk. Like I could see that they were thinking you are worthless to us right now. Um, and so I can't necessarily tell parents now going through that, um, that there's a solution that will work every single time. I can certainly say like, look, this is what worked for us. Um, and it may work for you. I don't know if you've tried it, but give it a shot. But I can at least say, I know how extremely hard this is. That having a child, having a baby who won't stop fussing for reasons that you can't discern is extremely hard. I don't know if I can give you advice that's going to fix it, but I want you to know I understand how difficult this is for you. Do your best to take breaks, take care of yourself, sustain your own well-being to the greatest extent possible. I promise you this will end. Um, and so the advice per se may not be all that different, but at least I can have a conversation that acknowledges how tough it can be. And if there's anything that complements the humility that I was talking about a minute ago, which I think, again, we could use so much more of in our public life, it's it's that empathy as well. And the two together are a uh, very powerful force, one that uh, I just wish more, uh, in addition to that 30 seconds of scrutiny, uh, I wish uh, we would apply... You have been the exact opposite of worthless to us uh, for this entire conversation. I really thank you for your time. Uh, Dr. Daniel Summers, who's a pediatrician, he's a partner at Children's Medical Office in Massachusetts. He is uh, he writes in Slate, uh, this piece in Arc Digital, I'll make sure, is linked in this episode. And uh, I would recommend uh, Twitter as well, and I'll make sure to put that uh, in the episode description also. Dan, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, and for the the genuine care that is palpable as as we all kind of look down the barrel of this and think this is this is not going to be easy, but I'm sure that uh, you will be you will be facing it with uh, a, a lot more of, of a front line, uh, and I hope you have both the physical and uh, emotional PPE to get through the rest of it. Well, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time talking with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. So thank you so much for asking me.